And welcome back, or welcome to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, what's going on? You already know, it's late February, it's raining in Portland, and that means normalcy is coming back to the world. So we're here, and we're ready to give the people what they want. And it's it's no longer snowing in Houston, so hopefully that's that's a good sign. <laughs> Um, but you know, the advantage of going through the snow apocalypse that I went through is we have a new course up and on our HPW scholar program, which is the one and only Renato Canova course, which is all things from the master coach himself, Renato Canova. He was kind enough to provide us with a literal treasure trove of information, which we are sending out weekly to our scholars, which includes, gosh, I think it's on last count, over 50 full training schedules of world-class athletes he's worked with. Some of the best in the world. Yeah, I mean, this is this is awesome. Like, Canova is the man uh, <laughs> for a lot of reasons because he's also a coach's coach like us. He shares liberally and freely. What Steve and I have done here is try to just put it all consolidated, nicely packaged into a uniform um, index of essentially Canova and his training philosophy and then how it's applied in actual real time. Uh, because, again, Steve and I put out like Canova a lot of stuff for the benefit of coaches everywhere for free, but sometimes it gets a little scattered and you kind of can miss the plot. And that's what we've tried to do here is sit down and just break down um, what Cano- how Canova's training philosophy is expressed with, you know, his fundamental period, his specific period coupled um, or sandwiched in between like those transition general periods and what to him the fundamental period looks like and how it's different than maybe other coaches preparation or general prep periods and also to what his specific periods because he's very discreet and he's very concise and specific about what those things mean so yeah it's fascinating it will make you a better coach guaranteed I think for me the biggest thing with Canova learning from him um, you know and talking with him is it really challenged me to have more uh, concreteness about periodization and then also better expectations of time horizons about when um, different types of athletes can realize different physical, psychological, uh, structural um, benefits or changes from certain work. And then that made it, for me, uh, my takeaway is better predictor of about how long we need to work on certain qualities for certain athletes uh, before we move on to the racing period or the next period of of training. Yeah, I mean, it's I I'll be honest. Reading through this and helping organize it and all this stuff, it was one of the best education things I've had. Right? Yeah. In the past several years, just just coming to terms, and I I've watched Canova present on a couple different times. I've talked to him, mm-hmm. but it's just the the sheer amount of information and reflecting on it and forcing myself to go through it again is uh, highly beneficial. So we suggest you check that out again. Um, try it out for a month. If you don't like it, cancel it. But I have a very 
very good feeling that you kind of like it and enjoy it and become a better coach. And that's what it's all about. So um, the link will be in the show notes if you haven't checked it out. So with that, let's dive into this week's podcast, which is when to pull the plug in a workout, a training block, a season. How do we know when it's time to shut it down? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that's so, so important is to have that humility and know when and why you're going to pull a plug in a certain situation. And it's not something we often talk about coaches because we talk about doing work and getting the work done and grinding through and love the grind and all those great, you know, memes and, you know, uh, quotes and stuff about perseverance and grit and determination. But sometimes you do just have to cut your losses and call it quits. And this is, I think, a conversation I haven't heard a lot. And, and you know, the one that Steve and I struggled with early on in our own coaching career and continue to struggle with because it's, it's tough to make that decision in real time. But, you know, I think what I'd like to hear, Steve, is just how you go about um, using different data or uh, input, whether subjective and objective, to make those decisions in the moment to the benefit of the athlete, even though it might not be the emotional thing you or the athlete wants to do, but it objectively it's the correct decision. Yeah, you know, I like to think of it, stepping back, and then I'll zoom in to the details, I like to think of it as the the tough decision isn't to push forward, it's to it's to pull back or shut down. I, I I think, you know, I envision it, even though I have no experience as a, a, a climber, for example, but I exp- I envision it as a climber climbing, well, I'll just go with the generic Mount Everest, right? And you're making your way up and you're making your way up and you can, you're getting there. You're, uh, you know, maybe a hundred meters or whatever, f- pretty close to the top, the summit. But you sit there and you say, I can make it. And that adrenaline and that like I put in all this work is telling you to make it to the top. But you have to sit there and think, can I make it back down if I use all this energy to get that to that top? Right? Because a lot of if you look at at climbing, a lot of the accidents, the deaths, etc. happen on the way back down after you've summoned it. Yes. Right? You got to make it down the mountain. You can't, you can't, it's not like running where the finish line, you get to the finish line, then you get to collapse and you got all this recovery. <laughs> no, you got to make it down the mountain. Yeah. So, like, that's how I see this, you know, not life or death, but it's similar in the sense that the easy decision is to be like, oh, I'm going to grit it, tough it out, and push to that summit. And I can probably make it. But then what happens if I don't have the energy to come back down? And the same thing happens here. What happens if, oh, I can gut it out in this workout or this training block. But what happens if I've gutted it out, push myself over the edge, and I've moved from overreaching to the depths of overtraining, and now, now I'm done. So just like a climber has to sit there and have this almost ruthless ability to uh, self-analyze in that moment. I think 
in this situation, it's a, as us, on us as coaches to have that ruthless ability to analyze those we are coaching. And diving into the details a little bit, I think it, it comes from both objective and subjective um, measures. So quickly, what I look at is I look at how different are were my expectations from the reality of the session, right? Looking at splits, looking at how difficult it is for them, et cetera. Going into a session, I predicted, or going into a season, right? Writing the training, I'm essentially predicting what they're able to do and at what and what level of effort they're doing. If there's a high degree of mismatch, that tells me something. The other thing is knowing your athlete and knowing their subjective feedback on, okay, what does this athlete look like when they're just kind of tired, when they're fatigued? What are the biomechanics looked at like when we break down, right? Where Where is, like, are they over that line, well over that line? All of those different things, which I'm sure we can dive into. But I think it's, you know, and the, the short answer is, a little bit of objective on like, okay, where are their splits? What is their mechanics looking like, et cetera? Things that I can actively see. And then a little bit subjective on the sense of, okay, what is this person's norm? What is their emotional state normally? What are their energy levels like when getting through tough stuff like that? What is happening in the workout that is different from normal? And that is what informs my decisions. Yeah, I think that is the key, um, is, oops, hold on a sec, sorry. Um, yeah, I think that's the key is understanding, like, why are you pushing through? Like, why are you like making it so tough on yourself? What's the risk reward, right? And I, and we often, we, we go into things thinking only about the reward, um, and, that's to me something that's really important to unpack before you even like do a training activity, whether it's a workout, a training block, or even a season is also think of the risk and have that risk reward ratio in your mind real high. So what I mean by that concretely is, okay, we're going to do, let's say we're in a fundamental period of training and we're going to systematically overload an athlete and what we're going to try to do is a lot of volume right so a lot of volume of either moderate uh, intensity work and or light intensity work and that's and that's what you've decided as a coach is the best trajectory for the development of that athlete and you've justified okay a lot of this volume to build this aerobic base whatever that's pretty common but what's the risk the risk is if you're doing a lot of volume that the mechanics can start to break down. And the risk is if the mechanics aren't sound, if you haven't had a certain degree of technical mastery set up before for that athlete, maybe physiologically, yes, they can endure and handle and adapt to that volume. But mechanically, they might start to get all these niggles, right? And then they start to move really poorly and they, their hips start to get misaligned or you start to have like a lot of like calf um, lower leg issues calf achilles shin issues that are really common um, with runners because of like poor joint mobility or what have you right so 
that's part of the risk and you have to manage that. So it, it, we as human beings like simple and concrete, right? We like the training. People love training plans because it's like, just do this every day. Like God himself, like wrote something down on the mount, training mountain and said, and you'll get fitter and faster. And to a certain point, it is true. You know, work is the, the vehicle that will get you or um, spur is the callus of growth. But we got to remember too, that the amount of work and the type of work you're doing all has its own risk. And that's, I think, what I'm constantly have top of mind is this fluency or very fluid, um, you know, uh, calculation going on every day and even every minute of a training session I'm overseeing of are we further on the reward side of the risk to reward ratio right now? Are we really close to that line where it's going to be a little bit more risky to do it? And how have we crossed over and how much have we crossed over into risk territory and what percent for you as the coach is your stop loss essentially? When do you want to cut it? And you have to have that predetermined before like a training block or a training session. And in my mind, like let's say we just have an athlete going back here to that uh, example and the goal is to do higher volume of work, higher volume of, you know, kind of aerobics, um, moderate aerobic work. And we want to see a certain stabilization or progression of their ability to uh, run a certain, you know, aerobic pace, right? And then all of a sudden, the goal was six minute pace, and just steady states at six minute pace. And then it, it should be manageable, it should be, yeah, it was tough, but I could do it. But then by week three, week four of this block, it's just like, like, oh, it's just so hard. Like, I feel like, Everything in the oh, everything I've got, everything I have, just to get like six oh eight out of this, right? And as a coach, that's a clear red flag. Where it's like, okay, objectively they're running slower. Objectively they're applying more effort to try to manage this pace. Objectively, um, subjectively, they're telling you it's really difficult. Uh, and with all those uh, markers, you gotta be like, hey, look, we need to like pull the plug here, step back a little bit, go in like a little like rest cycle, not do a workout, take a couple of day off because you are way too overloaded and continue to do more work. is not going to get you better. It's actually going to make you worse. You know, at the beginning of this, we hyped up the Canova, um, you know, course. And I'm reminded, you know, you just talked about there, like you have to be clear. And I'm reminded of some of the things that I read in there that makes it where Canova is entirely clear in the sense at, at one point he talks about during, you know, different periods of the year. So during this fundamental period, most of the workouts, the physiological parameter is more important than the, we'll call it mathematical. So, so if he goes into a workout and he says, you know, today, for example, I'm going to work on uh, running right below my lactate threshold. Well, it doesn't matter if the athlete's quote-unquote feeling or whatever of lactate threshold is 5.10 pace or 5-minute pace or 4.55 pace that day. Like, if they were, if it's their threshold is around 5-minute pace and they run 5 minutes, great. If it's around 5.10 pace and they run 5.10 pace, great. That differentiation doesn't matter, right? But if it's during the specific period and he's saying, hey... I'm trying to simulate and, you know, gain efficiency at, let's say, I don't know, we were running a 430 pace for miles to train yourself for a, a 10K, let's say. 
Well, if I'm running 438 pace and I'm just holding on at 438 pace and I'm struggling, but I'm barely getting through it. Well, that's not what I'm trying to train because that's not what I'm simulating in the race. The race, you know, in this instance, I'm trying to run 430 pace. So if I'm significantly off of that, doesn't matter what the physiology is in this in this specific instance for Canova. Said, cut it, right? Recover until I can get that specificity that I want for this workout. Now, now I think that again, it varies based on workout, but I think that's a clear delineation of knowing what you're trying to go after. You know, before the workout starts, is what am I trying to get out of? this workout and you nailed it on the head with this risk reward is, is, is what is the point and what is the purpose? So I'll take it a step further. If you're looking at, let's say acidosis training and just trying to flood the muscles with as much acidosis. Well, if on rep three of your 300 meter repeats for your 800 guys, the athletes start, start falling off a little bit, but our, are surviving and flooding their body with acidosis, you might want to keep going, mm-hmm. right? Because you're just saying, let's let's feel, let's get those hydrogen ions, let's feel that burn, let's figure out how to get our muscles equipped to it. Okay. But if they're breaking down and your goal was to simulate, let's say, you know, the uh, the efficiency and mechanics of running at specific 800 meter pace and you're starting to fall off and your mechanics are getting sloppy and all that stuff then you might want to shut down because your goal is different. So I think that is, you know, be if you're taking one lesson away from it is before we enter the workout, be clear on what you're trying to accomplish. And if we zoom this out, the same thing applies to a training block, right? If whatever you call your training blocks during this fundamental period, what is your goal? What are you trying to get out of that? Mm-hmm. Well, that that dictates whether you push through things, you know, you pull back, you stop things because you're clear on what you're trying to accomplish. And I, that is, I think the key is why coaching education and why um, Steve and I do what we do and why we were no good at what we did for a long time early on when we were young coaches is because this concept of concreteness is something like, we all want to grasp onto, but the reality is there's times for concreteness and there's time for fluidity and probably the best style of like early general fundamental um, training uh, is fartlek, right? In true fartlek, fartlek where it's like go for a specific period of time as specific effort. And a lot of Western coaches have become very pace rigid and that's kind of the the um the the easiest way to communicate uh, is through pace but the, if you're at the wrong period of time rigid in the pace f- uh for no good reason it can create a cascade effect where it heightens that risk and diminishes that reward so this is what canova is really good about and what i really learned as well too from that from him is effort is what matters in the fundamental fundamental period. All that matters is the effort and the effort can be there and the pace can fluctuate wildly. Like you, you you know, he can, you know, if you're trying to teach in marathoners, 
the ability to use fatty acid, um, you know, and lipid su- uh, fueling substrates as fuel, well, then, yeah, you do want to do long grinding workouts where they are bonking because that bonking and initially in the fundamental period is, uh, you know, creating an embarrassment of the system to signal adaptation to then afford that. But the effort's going to be a lot. And then that time on the watch is going to be really crappy, right? And I don't think people can handle and athletes and coaches included in a certain period, seeing a really crappy pace, because you we, we constantly need that uh, a marker of an achievement index every day. And we want to feel like positive gains have been made, right? We want, oh, we did this many miles. That's good, because I started off this morning doing having zero. And now I did 10 miles today. Okay, or um, you know, my weekly average is goal is to run no more than three miles a day. And I did five, right? Uh, we use this as little games, but it's not necessarily how training works. Same thing with pace, right? Like we're thinking, oh, okay, well this week, my tempo run pace should be six minute pace. And then the next week should be 555 and next week it should be 550 and so on and so forth. Very uniform. No, not necessarily. Uh, and that's where if you go in like in like, that's where I really like what you were saying, Steve earlier is, if you go in with clear expectations on the workout, really defined, and you have articulated it to your uh, athletes, as well as uh, really defined it in your training about what is what you're trying to get out of it and why and where the athlete is focusing their attention. So that's one key thing I try to uh, also um, discuss is where to focus your attention. So in a specific period, focus on the pace, we need to focus on habituating and getting your body and your brain and your muscles and the whole system used to going at this cadence, this velocity, right? But, and I, and it should be, the effort should be here, right? So very concrete on the pace, very wide tolerance on your general effort level. But at the end of the day, in a specific period, it's hit the pace monkey. That's flipped in the fundamental period early on, right? So the effort should be very clear, like very concrete. If we're doing, let's say, a far leg workout, you go, okay, the effort should be right at this type of effort for you as an athlete and clearly to call down and define. The pace then has a very wide tolerance, a very wide range. It could fluctuate between five-minute pace to 5.30 pace. That's fine as long as the effort is there. And this is, I, I think, one of the key things Canova talks about a lot and why that course is so valuable, but also too, we as any coaches can understand like the base, best way to think about it is effort first, pace second. And is once you've dialed in the effort and you've ac- accommodated or accustomed that athlete to an effort level, then you can start to focus on the pace. Too often, we focus on just the pace at any effort. And I think that's to the diminishment, this uh, disservice of a lot of athletes and training programs. Yeah, I, I I think that's the, you know, that that delineation there is the best way to to think about it because it's it's very simple on okay, when do you fa- focus on the pace and when do you focus on the effort? <laughs> but it's also profound because as you said, I think in the the western world, we love quantified everythings. <laughs> and you know, we love to see our improvement and often track our improvement as athletes and coaches based on, you know, are they running this workout faster than the last time they did it? And that leads to this potential downfall 
of of disconnecting these things and like putting too much emphasis on it um which takes us away from our ability to pull pull the plug and what i mean by that is if you look at high level athletes a lot of times they can compensate right so if we're looking at the pace right and last time we did four by mile at 440 pace with two minutes rest and then a couple weeks later, like we do it again, we're able to do it. And a couple weeks later, we like we do it again, and we're able to squeeze by and get it. But instead of a seven out of ten on on the effort, it took a nine out of ten. Right. Well, if we look at those workouts from just the pace, we might be able to th- say and justify like, well, workout was about the same. Like he was able to get through it, so nothing's wrong. Right. But we didn't take into pat into account that they they justified and or, or they were able to do that by increasing the intensity of effort up to a, a race like level we'll call it. So that's why I think you know I'm going to come back to this idea of we need subjective as well as these objective uh, markers to be able to to make these decisions. And part of that, I think the, the most important part, honestly, is getting to know your athlete and seeing what their norms are in these different types of workouts and like then seeing how far out of these, these norms um, they go. Yeah, and that's – I think that is always – the key is graduating and kind of baby-stepping – development and progression, right? Um, a lot of people always ask, uh, like, like me on, or Steve is like, where, where do you get the, you know, these concrete defined, um, you know, ranges for things, whether it's for a certain load or type of a workout or recovery run or pace uh, graduation expectations, right? So some of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, is very much scientific and physiological based, right? It's the art and science of coaching. But then also an equal part for the athlete, the, the individual working with is knowing that person, and how they are wired. So we have these heuristics. We have these general, um, you know, rules of thumbs and guiding posts. The scientific studies, training logs from you know athletes in certain disciplines for many many years, uh, conversations with coaches, etc. Right. But the, the key here is being able to blend them and use them as guideposts, but also to know explicitly what your risk loss and stop loss is in a workout or a period of training. So I'll give a good example here. Um, like currently with my wife, you know, she's a 5k, 10k runner who's eventually transitioning up to the marathon. And she had a really good block of like foundational training and all this uh, stuff here in the fall and early winter period. And then been stressed out the last couple weeks because we've been, you know, on the house hunt looking for a house and it's just a very stressful thing. Right. And because of that, uh, stress, you know, that has impacted her training. And so the ideal block of training and progression that we had, she wasn't responding to, she was feeling more run down because she's more generally stressed out, feeling more fatigued, getting harder and harder and harder. And sometimes it's like, okay, yeah, just push through it, monkey. Uh, but what I've been doing recently with her has been on more high alert, right? So been more highly aware about, okay, if you really are feeling like this, 
on this type of training activity and you get halfway through it or a, a little bit through it, just pull the plug, just cut the workout completely. It's like, don't even try to like, um, continue with the workout at a slower pace. Like it's just a clear signal. Your body is still run down and still beaten down with stress. Right. Um, and that's been going, you know, it's been choppy, right? And it's hard when it's choppy like that. But we got to remember stress or I mean, um, rest is a training unit. Rest is training. It's a valuable piece of it. No one brags though, really about like, you know, quantifying like, oh, I got this much rest or recovery. Like we try to do it now with like, say the whoop app um, and, you know, things that do try to give you a very loose quantification of your recoverability or how you've recovered. However, it's not um, anything that you can, uh, you know, really brag about on social media or say, oh, you know, good job. I got all these days, you know, at this HRV or whatever. It's just another guidepost, right? Another uh, tool, another quantification tool in your blend of art and science to help you out. So, but the idea is we want her to eventually get out of this little funk, if you will, um, feeling a little bit more recharged, refreshed, you know, enthused, etc., so that we can begin another uh, block of, um, you know, difficult, highly stressful training that she can actually do and respond to, not just do and um, continue to just get beat up by. And that's, I think, the key here is, is knowing that athlete and knowing their sensitivity too. Like, again, we'll go back to my wife. Her sensitivity level is really, really high. That means, um, you know, she really feels depleted after doing any type of neural, fast, dynamic speed work, right? Hill sprints, weightlifting, plyometrics, uh, fast hundreds, two hundreds, you name it. it. It leaves her really run down for several days, right? Because her neural system is just not ac- accommodated to it because she's more of a, she's had 20 years of distance work. However, a long run or threshold, you know, miles, uh, broken miles or in easy steady state leaves her feeling really, you know, recharged and enthused. And she bounces back from that quickly because her tolerance or sensitivity is really high tolerance, really low sensitivity to it. So by knowing her, I can know what buttons to push and unpush and what to stay away from in a period of diminishing returns like we're in right now. So it's like, yeah, scrap this, scrap this, scrap this. And you might say, oh, but if you don't do speed work, you, you know, for three days or eight days, you start to lose that quality. That's true. But that's part of the game. It's part of the compromise for an athlete who's highly sensitive to that. I got to get away from it for their benefit. Otherwise, I'm just going to continue just to like run her down, run her down, run her down, even though we're trying to build her up. But if all the data and objective and subjective is there is telling you it's going downhill, pull the plug, you know, sooner rather than later, you'll thank yourself for it in the weeks and months that follow. But it's just a tough, tough, tough call to make in the moment. You know, two things you said there that are are worth putting a pin in. Um, (laughs) One is the compromise. All training is compromise. (laughs) Because if we sat here and we said, well, this detrains at this amount of time and this like starts getting worse at this amount of time. And, you know, this takes this many weeks or days to build up. If you plotted all those things out, it would be impossible to fit them all in at the perfect times, right? That is why periodization exists because we're like, well, you know, it's like Lydiard. What did he do? Well, if I build up this massive base and then I do just enough to maintain it, they might not be as ready for a 20 miler 
in June as they were in January, but it's enough endurance still to allow them to take on the 5K or what or whatever have you for their specific race because we've added in this other stuff. It's all a compromise. So that's number one. So if you're worried about pushing things, pushing your weekly tempo run or whatever have you, or not getting your workout, your, you know, your high intensity interval workout in every two weeks or whatever it is, like, don't stress it. Like, you're compromising on on almost everything. So that that I think is just worth, you know, considering on a tangent. And the other thing there is the sensitivity that I know we've talked about before, but again, is so important because what is risky for a marathoner will not be or will be different from what is risky for an 800 runner. Yeah, <laughs> a, <know>? a lot. <laughs> a lot. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, the same w- – even when we're not taking those to the extremes, what is risky for a 800-1500 runner is different from what is, you know, risky for a 4-800 runner, right? For an 8-1500 runner, you know, having a 10, 11, 12 mile long run, you know, it's not that that risky depending on the athlete, but you can get away with it all the time. It's not a big deal. I mean, that's what Lydiard like had long, long runs with Snell for a while, but if you took that same and applied it to, I don't know, um, a guy who is a four eight hundred guy, man, that long run becomes really risky because, like, they're fast twitch, they're explosive. Like, you can you can kill that very quickly. You know, you can put them in a state of depletion where they can't do the stuff that makes them really good, which is running really fast. Mm-hmm. So. It's it's being aware of not just what style type of eight hundred runner it is, for example, or what type of you know miler or five k runner or whatever, but it's what your individual athlete brings to the table and where his sensitivity might be. Yeah, I mean, and that's always, I think that's hard when you think of the any athlete, including you know whether it's you know, non-running athletes in a very, in a too broad or general sense. Right. So like people will ask, well, why, you know, Snell was able to do 22 mile long runs and set the world record at 800. And that's one person. And 60 years ago, long time ago, right. When we, we had very rudimentary tools and measurements and uh, concepts about training. And Lydiard was not wrong about it. He was also not that right because Snell was a freak of nature. He was a very good athlete in a lot of different ways, right? And you have to respect how good he was. Because if you look at the arc of all the 800 meter runners and all the um, you know men and women who have done the two lap race, m- more and more and more, the trend is going towards speed and power development, right? Uh, and you're seeing good mi- quarter milers becoming good half milers and because they have that speed. And you're seeing it being going from a, p- a negative split event to a positive split event, right? A-, a deceleration event. So with that in mind, why would you then say if the general trend in efficacy of this event is speed and power and, in, you know, speed endurance and decelerating less and having a high speed reserve, 
why do you need a weekly 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 mile long run for that 800 meter athlete to keep their aerobic base strong or build it up? Well, they only need to do this event for two minutes. It's, 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 I mean, if they're a pure middle distance runner, it's two minutes. Like, why do you need a 90 minute long run to help build up the efficacy for two minutes? Like that long run can be less is what I'm getting at. It can be an hour. It can be, you know, maybe if they're also like a miler, it can be 80 minutes and you're fine. You don't necessarily need to go and do this 20 mile long run for the 800 meter runner. That's just poor management, I think, and poor um, specificity on the coach's part to just give that blanket prescription that what's good for the marathoner is good for the, the half miler. Because Steve, you brought up a really important point. It's not. It's so, so different. Um, and that's why, again, knowing these general rules of thumbs, but also too, knowing how your athlete is wired and what's good for them is going to be really key to getting them to respond the way you want as well. And, um, you know, I've had half milers who they responded really, really well to a full day's rest or two days rest. And that's what we did over some weekends. Say, hey, don't do anything. Just chill out. Just be, you know, be a, a normal person. Or I had, you know, half milers who really responded well to playing a different sport. Like just because, you know, playing basketball or volleyball or some um, indoor soccer or something, uh, just because, again, they, they got recharged and enthused from doing something a little a little bit different than running and you go oh well what's the the risk reward of you know them you know uh, getting injured playing that other sport that's part of that decision is saying well yeah there is a risk they could twist an ankle you know someone could slide tackle them whatever but i think too part of understanding that is again as the coach it's really key to have that uh compass about what's going to benefit the athlete, not just in the micro and today and tomorrow, but in the more of the meso and the macro of this week, this season, even the trajectory of their career. Yeah. You know, the more I think about it, it's like the nuance of training, right? We have these hard and fast principles and they're good, but they're only good as they apply to the, the individuals you're working with and that variation, like you have to pay attention to. So as we sit here and say, okay, when do we know how, how to pull the plug on a workout, a training block, a season? It comes down to understanding these general principles, but then understanding the individuals and athletes you're working with and their tolerances within these different variations or these different styles of workouts or what have you you know as you just said there for some athletes two days off or a day off is like man it makes you feel good you know for others they take a day off and they're stressed number one because they're taking a day off right and number two their body because of that like mental you know, routine or whatever have you that's ingrained in there, they sometimes feel worse, right? So instead of taking a day off, you know, going and hopping in a a pool for 20 minutes or going on a nice walk or even going on like a two mile shakeout or whatever is better for them than, you know, taking that day off from a physiological and, and psychological standpoint. But you have to understand the athlete 
that that you you know you're working with to make those decisions. And when we're looking at, you know, okay, when do we pull the plug on stuff? Like again, it comes down to comes back to these general principles are important, but you have to know your athlete's sensitivity on these different things and their sensitivity to the different styles or nuance of fatigue. You know, when I when I was an athlete, <laughs> I could I could handle when I was young, I could handle volume really well, right? I could I could handle threshold sessions really well. But when it came to those going to the well type workouts, or races, like I would puke after almost every single one. If we did 10 by 400 at mile pace, I would puke, guaranteed, all the time in high school and and, in college. It just happened, right? Well, that's fine and good, but if if every single, like, week I'm showing up and throwing up in the workout and then throwing up in the race, eventually my body says, you know what, this kind of (laughs) sucks, Like, we're not going to let you go to this level, like, anymore because you've you've kind of pulled, you know, pushed it. So, my coaches, like, knew very well. They were like, well, Steve needs to do these, like, go to the go- well, see God workouts every once in a while. But he can't do it too much because for whatever reason, like, when he goes there, like, his body literally goes to, to, to the depths to get, to, the, to get that out of it. So, we need to be very judicious on where we do that or else we're going to ruin his ability to go to that place when he needs to in a race, for example. And this is, yeah, I think to how to know that sensitivity is key, right? And this is pretty much a lot of it is genetic makeup. Um, you know, like we like to think that athletes are very malleable to training and they are, we all are, we are all malleable to stress in our environment and our habitat to up to a certain point though. Right. And it's just recognizing the genetic makeup of the uh, individual you're working with. And, you know, there's a lot of different um, tests that are out there uh, for different, um, you know, athletic efficacy or um, prowess and what have you. And those are all great, right? It's kind of like the NFL combine. Like you do all these tests and people try to get a, a good barometer of how, how good is this athlete, right? Well, they're only that good at that test. <laughs> So it's like, there's no reason you need to say, what can this athlete bench or what's their 40 yards, you know, um, dash time for NFL football? Because when in a football game, are they benching that or, um, you know, running 40 yards straight without anyone in front of them? They're not. I mean, it's a good general quality that has become like this marker for people. But if you do that, you know, that trend of who's going to become a good NFL player uh, and who has a good combine, they're very awfully not the, not that tightly correlated, right? Because there's so much more at play than just those simple basic um, physical attributes um, that are tested there. So how do you, getting back on track, is how do you figure out your athlete's sensitivity? That's observation as a coach. You observe in, that's why the general periods of training are so valuable. And actually, to me, they're kind of the most stressful periods of training, especially working with a new athlete, because I don't know this person that well. And we're putting through a lot of general work. So we're getting a lot of exposure to a lot of different types of activity. And the direction is not that concrete. The direction is apply your best effort or this level of effort for this type of activity where it's lifting weights, med ball, uh, long run, uh, threshold workouts, strides, what have you, hill sprints, what have you, right? Um, Part of that general 
uh, phase of training be, in where you'd lightly incorporate a lot of different things, maybe with a certain focal point on one or two key uh, physiological or um, uh, athletic skill attributes to upgrade, you still, you know, pepper in some other stuff as a coach. Why? Primarily for me, it's just to see how they respond and ask them, right? How does this make you feel? How does this type of work? Do you like it? Do you not like it, right? We have all this quantitative uh, you know, measurement tools at our disposal here for numbers, but still at the end of the day, when we're working with athletes, the best best measure is the conversation. The best measure is just that check-in. Hey, how are you doing? How are you responding? And that the athlete's ability to feel honest or to give an honest answer without feeling like they're a failure or feeling like you're going to be hard on them as a coach because they're not maybe giving the answer they expect you want to hear. And that's where you create that culture uh, and that relationship where they feel like, yes, I can give coach my honest feedback on how I'm doing and not uh, expect any, um, you know, uh, retribute or uh, any kind of uh, gruff from them because what's happening is I'm not meeting their expectation. I feel like a bad athlete. And it's like, no, there's no bad athletes. There's only bad coaching, right? And bad coaching is any coaching that doesn't respect where the athlete is in the moment in relationship to what's planned. And we can't get that clear pulse or barometer without that, you know, honest, honest feedback. And so to me, that's how I figure out that sensitivity. If an athlete just says, oh, I love these types of days. I love this type of work. Or I say, okay, today, you know, I want you to do, and they're going, oh, this groan, right? Uh, okay, I'll eat my, I'll eat, uh, eat my Brussels sprouts. Fine. You, you start to get a pulse and then you say, okay, well, if one of those er- highly sensitive areas is really determinant to their success in their chosen event. So let's say you have someone who, um, is a 5k runner and they just hate speed workout, right? And because speed stuff, they're just no good at it, but they need that speed uh, and to maximize and have a higher speed reserve to be able to have a more potent kick at the end of the race, to be able to go at a higher, you know, velocity of VO2 max throughout the race. And it's really, really important to them. Well, then you need to sit down with them and be like, hey, look, we got to upgrade your speed capacity and your mechanics and how you move and all this stuff. I know it's hard for you. I know you don't like it. I know you have a high sensitivity to it. So we're only going to inc- incorporate it once or twice a week. But I really want you just to focus on giving your best effort toward um, at it, even though it's difficult for you to take as long a rest you need in between each rep, whatever, 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 you know, you have to introduce that upgrade to that highly sensitive area in a very, um, strategic and very, um, steady and, um, slow way, uh, so that you don't fry them and burn them out. And then also too, complementing it and surrounding it with uh, the type of training work they really like and enjoy that they have a low sensitivity to. So that's why for a lot of 5k runners who are fit that archetype of good engine, but not, not the best, uh, you know, foot speed in the world or uh, ability. That's why I always go speed, you know, at the beginning of a workout and then threshold or tempo after, because it's like, okay, you're eating your Brussels sprouts and then you're doing the thing you like to do. You're having your cake afterwards. And so it completes that, that meal and that upgrade because they're able to get a lot out of the speed stuff early in that session because they're fresh. And then they're able to grind away and be in their happy place, so to speak, um, later in the workout 
doing that threshold or tempo stuff. And, you know, honestly, if they're a little uh, neuromuscularly fried from the speed stuff, it's not going to impact all that negative, um, high negativity or with as much negativity in the uh, threshold stuff. And so it's a win-win. Happy, happy. <laughs> yes. Um, I, 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 th- I think there, like, the, the takeaway there is, like, understanding that small dose, you can still get the adaptation with these small doses, even if they're highly sensitive to things, right? And sometimes it's figuring out how to get these small doses in a way that, you know, doesn't take away from things. And I think, you know, the topic of this podcast on like when to know the pull the plug, like that is, it's part of it is understanding if you're going this direction where workouts might not be where they need to, or like the sensitive that you have a highly sensitive athlete to work out and you're a little worried about is, is, in creating structures like that of like, okay, how do I minimize the potential to, um, you know, the potential disaster or change or going to a place that I don't want to go? Well, still getting some of the adaptation out of that. And creating a structure like that one where you're doing sprint work and then threshold layering on something they like afterwards is, is, is one of the ways you could do that. Um, there's a lot of different variations or ways that you can do that. But I think like recognizing the structure of how you set, set things up as a coach, like can help avoid some of these situations where we might have to pull the plug in other situations. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's what makes the game so much fun and also so hard, (laughs) you know, I think, and that's why it, it, we're always getting better as coaches and athletes to me are always teaching me a lot more than, um, you know, any kind of theoretical or scientific or abstract study, right? Cause that theory is important. And that's why we, we spend so much time on this stuff in training um, principles and methodology and best practices, but you got to make decisions in real time in the moment and they got to be quick. Speed's important. They got to be correct. Accuracy is important, right? And they got to be concrete uh, and firm. Firmness is important, right? And so as a coach, that's where you don't need to explain to an athlete before a session or training block, all the things you want to see. But when you're in the midst of it, you got to know when to pull the plug because things are going in a way that um, are not the, the, like we talked about before, what you expected or the response you want in that moment. Right. And so for me, and I'd love to hear Steve, your decision making on this too, when I'm in a workout or watching a workout of an athlete, for me, movement is the key first tell. Like how are they moving on a cool down or recovery lap, how are they moving during uh, the the repetition, whatever it is, whether it's speed work or steady state work or, you know, VO2 max type stuff. How is that looking and how does that differ? How much variance is there from their normal state of movement or what's typical for them? And I just spend a lot of time watching athletes move. Like, for athletes that I coach for long periods of time, like, you know, I mean, four or five years, like 
and who I no longer coach now and might still be competing uh, at, at whatever level. I look at them and I can tell who they are, you know, 400 meters away just because of their movement pattern. And I can tell like, oh man, they're looking really strong. They're looking really good today. Or like, that's really good to see them, you know, pop off with a really good um, uh, race or like, oof, yeah, they really hit that wall there. That's tough because it's just, you just know what their movement pattern makeup is. And that for me, that's the key tell is just when I'm in the person uh, coaching someone, it's if their movement quality starts to really get beyond a certain stop loss level, that's where I pull the plug because, or really, really compromise and adjust things because we need to keep that movement crisp and accurate. Otherwise for me, you're just doing exhaustive work. Uh, and you're, you know, it's, it's hard work, it's labor, but does it help? Um, you know, and a quick side note caveat, since we both had a snowpocalypse, Steve, it was like the younger me, in the snowpocalypse era would just be like, all right, I'm going to get my yak treks on and get out and go run for the, in the snow because I got to get my work in the older me, uh, you know, says like, Oh no, I'm not going to run in the snow. Cause we had like eight inches of snow footing was like slushy and sloppy. Like what you're going to do is you're like, yeah, you'll get the miles in and you'll, you'll do hard labor for four miles, 10 miles, whatever. But then the risk reward is not in your favor. Cause what's going to happen is your whole body is going to be so sore the next like week. Why? All these tiny stabilizer muscles that never worked and haven't worked like that are having to stabilize every step in this really unstable environment of the snow. And it's like, unless you're training for something like that, there was, there's, there's no reason to, you know, have to like suffer adverse effects for like the next week, week and a half from all these tiny stabilizers and muscles being overstressed and overworked out of nowhere just to get my five mile run in or my 10 mile run in or whatever, because I wrote it down on a training plan. Like the environment was like, no go. So I just didn't run for, you know, four days, took it easy. I mean, went for some walks and stuff and the snow was awesome. Came back and like did a, you know, a tempo run two days after um, coming back from that little weather imposed four day break personally. And I had one of my fastest, easiest, best tempo runs in like, you know, for me, for my old butt in the last like two months. I mean, much better risk reward there than had I just plowed through and said, I got to keep the streak alive and keep running for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think there's a little maturity that comes with understanding that. And the, the movement piece is so important, you know, um, I will never forget when I was, I think, uh, gosh, a sophomore in college or something. And, uh, coach Tom Teles showed up to watch me race and he watched me in the warm up, Okay. And then he watched the, he said in the first 200 meters, he turns to my parents and says, Steve's in trouble. And this is the first 200 meters of a, of, of a 1500. Mm, and he wow. says, wow. and he goes, He's forced, like, he's forcing things. He doesn't look like he normally does. Like, this isn't, like, essentially predicting this isn't going to end well. <laughs> and it, it didn't end well. I mean, I toughed it out until, like, you know, 1,200 or something on, like, three three minutes or 301 through it. But then blew up the last, you know, 300. And afterwards, I remember we had this discussion. He said, in the warm-up, you looked one way. And then when we got into the race, like, your mechanics immediately changed, you know. And I could tell, like, you're starting to force things and you were fatigued, like, showing these signs, like, very early on. And 
I, I never forget that moment because, well, one, he was like, you look like two, t- t- you look like a completely different runner than you normally, you know, do in practice. So, um, I, I remember that comment because it was like, wow, like that's crazy to me at the time, but now as an athlete or as a coach for so long, like I get it because you're right. Like, you know, I was standing at, at, at practice yesterday and just watching, uh, you know, our athletes do some three hundreds and, you know, in the middle of rep number three of, you know, 10 to 12, I'm sitting there and I'm going like, huh, that, that athlete looks a little different, you know? And sometimes you don't know exactly what it is, but you're just, you know, you're like, huh, that athlete doesn't look like they normally do. I'm going to watch this a little bit. And sure enough, you know, as it goes on, things get a little worse and they're, they're able. And the thing is at first they're able to, you know, they look a little different, but they're still in the group, right? They're still running the times, you know, and sometimes the effect doesn't come out until like fatigue really shows up and pushes them to where, okay. Like I can never, I can no longer quote unquote fake it, you know, um, I can no longer compensate. So I think that, that, that ability there is incredibly important. And how do you, how do you get that? It's very simple. <laughs> like you watch your athletes with deliberate intention and know enough about biomechanics. You don't have to be a genius at it, but know enough to be dangerous and watch them with your attention long enough where you know they're normal and then you'll just kind of adapt and understand and have this like huh things look different yeah and that's you know i think we talked about this on other podcasts too steve's and like you're spot on like it's also why it's important to watch the warm-up like and just watch athletes in general like not be on the phone during the warm-up or distracted if you can um and you know it's what made like what makes um, remote coaching a added layer of challenge is all you do and you know what you have when you're coaching an athlete remotely is you only have the training plan the numbers and their feedback to guide you um, so you have to figure out a, a, a different way to make those decisions because you're not there in person but if you have the privilege to be there in person you know now that we're getting back and opening things back up which is great and getting back to business you know more close to business as normal um with kind of coming out of this pandemic it, it you know it gives us a good opportunity just to s- slow down and step back and get back to first principles which is watching people and their general affect and we are very sensitive to that like it's our brain can quickly tell if someone's in a good mood or bad mood that we're familiar with, you know, or, um, you know, even someone we're not familiar with just from kind of their general demeanor, posture, character, facial expressions, all that type of stuff. Right. And that's, those are also really to me, strong benchmarks when working with athletes to figuring out if it's go time or not. And that's where sometimes you do make those concessions and it's tough in a team setting, right? You know, Steve, I've had this too, where it's like you get in kind of your weekly rhythm and it's like, okay, we're going to, this workout days are these days, easy days are these days because you are wedded to a seven day scholastic calendar or what have you. uh, And you're in a big group setting because you're coaching a team and you got your, you know, cross country team or your milers and 5k runners, right? And during the warm up, like, one of them just doesn't look that good. Uh, and maybe it might be one of your mid-pack runners, right? Someone who 
has a really strong identity, what it at that moment to running and their ability to run, who has a good identity, uh, uh, as a, a strong identity as a part of the team and the group. But you know, as a coach, like, man, they really shouldn't do this today. Or they really should go a little bit slower today because they just look off and they complained about being tired because they pulled an all-nighter or, you know, or they're stressed out for whatever reason. That's where as a coach, you got to, you know, have that trust and ability to, to intervene quickly or even early with that athlete based on your observation and go, hey, look, Susan, I, I know like you, you can do this workout at this pace. I know that's not a question about you can deliver, you can hit it. However, today, I think because of all these factors that you were talking about before, you're stressed out, you had, you, you know, you're doing an all night or write this paper, um, that if we do it, it's just going to put you too far underwater or it's just going to set you too far back to be too stressful at this level. So what I'm going to have you do is run it with the second group or the third group at a slower pace. It, you're not punished. It's not a bad thing, but just respect the amount of stress your body's under. And by adding to those more stress with this workout, even as prescribed, it's just going to compound it. And then it's going to take longer to bounce back from. And that's a really tough conversation to have as a, you know, a coach to an athlete in the moment, because no one wants to feel like left out, right. Or they're being punished or they can't, Oh, what's wrong. You know, you know, and you have to also have that conversation with the group as well. Like, Hey, I'm going to move Susan today to, you know, the second group or the third group or whatever, just because, you know, again, I'm really concerned about her not getting too stressed out. And here's why this and that. Because you also don't want to set up the team dynamic as well, where it's like, well, why is Susan going to do an easier workout today? I'm stressed out too, blah, 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 right? And that's what makes it all so difficult and so rewarding at the same time as a coach is being able to manage those physiological um, behaviors you want to see and influences you want to deliver in workouts, but also the psychology of group and team uh, harmony and dynamics. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, I think that's uh, a great comment and a great, you know, place to kind of summarize this one up is that a lot of it is like being able to pay attention, understanding the environment you're working with, understanding like the impact that it has on the athlete and the group environment you're of athletes, understanding the norms you're working with. And that is what goes into this decision-making process, whether it's, uh, in a workout, a training block, a se- or a season, mm-hmm. it's 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 not just like understanding these physiological principles, but it's more of or biomechanical principles. It's more of hey, like what is the norm your athlete displays, and what is the sensitivity or risk of uh, pushing them over the edge and making that like having that deliberate decision making process uh, in order. Yeah, no, it's so key. And I, I really, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, Steve, I really resonated with um, your analogy of the mountain climber. It's so easy to get focused on getting and climbing up the mountain, right? And that's that's not where there's a real clear reward there. And it's, you know, we're so dialed in when we're, when we're in that direction, that upward direction and trend. However, that risk is heightened, the death the injury rate is heightened on the way down the mountain because you've already gotten the dopamine positive benefit of scaling to the top. And then when you're coming down, you have to be extra cautious because you're one fatigued, but then two, there's no real reward of coming down the mountain um, 
only just to get back to base camp, right? And same thing applies here is that is the time to be the most sensitive and on guard is coming down the mountain. And the, the most important time as a coach for your coaching uh, input to be heard and f- um, to be uh, validated and acted upon by the athlete is when they're in that really sensitive risk risk area uh, and where you need to make those decisions to make sure like you don't incur injury, burnout, excessive fatigue, even though like today you got to take a step and you got to pull back a little bit so that in the next couple days or weeks, you can then, you know, surge forward. Exactly. hundred percent. So we hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast. Uh, thanks again for listening. If you haven't check out our new scholar program or our new scholar course with Renato Canova, we think you're going to have a lot of great information and um, find a lot of coach and uh, coaching usability out of that. So check it out. And in it, until next time, thanks again. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time, the hour out of your day to listen to us talk training, coaching, and when to pull the plug.